Hey guys, you're probably being fooled. There are 22 property investment lies that are espoused by buyers agents and course creators and the who's who, especially the most popular podcasts that you probably listen to, the most popular books that you probably read. Chances are you're being scammed by all of this. In fact, you've probably even left these people a five-star review. It's like giving a review, a five-star review to your robber. In this episode, let's expose these lies, 22 of them using long-term data. You're going to be pretty shocked. Like We're going to go through things like, do big cities actually grow more than small towns? Do high suburb incomes lead to higher capital growth? Do areas that have grown most in the past grow most in the future? To suburbs close to the city grow more than those that are not? Do premium, expensive suburbs grow more than... Others, what about schools, train stations, shopping centers? Do these have any impact on capital growth whatsoever? Like, here's a big one. Can you get yield and capital growth at the same time? Everyone loves Sydney and Melbourne, but do they really grow more than other cities or regional centers? So, like, this is such an important um, episode. I want you to be with me right to the end. And I just want to apologize. I'll be very transparent. The audio quality isn't crash hot. So please, please, please be tolerant. And I promise you that the actual content will be fire. It will make up for the pretty shoddy um, audio quality. Thank you, guys. Here we go. Welcome to the Oz Property Investment Mastery Podcast. My name is PK and I help busy people build passive income by buying top 5% growth and cash flow property and build a portfolio using data without wasting months doing research, spending weekends at inspection or catching flights or dropping ten dollars to $20,000 on buyer's agents every single time. So if you're confused, lack confidence and just overwhelmed with all the information and marketing misinformation available online and don't know where to start, then this show is for you. We're going to be exposing property lies. You know, there's thousands of buyers agents, I'm sure dozens of course creators, including myself. And like so many people just share lies that somehow have been entrenched in property industry for new comers, new people that are investing in property that just accept these lies for what they're worth. But we're here to expose them using data. And the person who's really done this is, uh, well, one of the people is Luke Vasquez, who's a university student. And, you know, he, he hasn't even bought a property yet. So it's like, why should I listen to him? It's because he's probably done more research than people who've already bought five properties because he really wants to make sure he doesn't get that first property wrong. The first property is the most important property. And a lot of what we'll be taking is actually from, and I'll give credit to where credit is due, um, Jeremy Shepard, okay, who's really big on data. You can go look him up. I encourage you to do that. But all the credit goes to him. That's where the data comes from. Luke, is there anything you wanted to say before we get into it? No, I just want to give credit to Jeremy for his work. I think he's done a really good job at really educating the community about property and um, sort of challenging some of those sort of old wives' tales that have existed in the property community for a long period of time, I think. Let's go through chart by chart. So, guys, I have 22 charts. So, there's a lot of stuff to cover. And it's every chart's going to like maybe blow your mind or something like that. So, stay with us. We're going to go through each and every chart. Here's the first one. I'll zoom in a little bit. So what this is saying is 10 biggest significant urban areas versus 10 smallest. Luke, like how do you interpret this? 
Well, I think the biggest thing for me here, just looking at the end result, it's obviously a cumulative growth graph over the time. And you can see remarkably after 30 years, both the 10 largest significant urban areas and smallest have both returned with 638% um, capital growth, which is pretty remarkable. We often hear, you know, you've got to be in the, the big urban areas, the big cities, you know, stay away from the regionals, they don't perform as strongly, less employment. But, you know, that, that's just not the reality. Because if it was, you would see a continual outperformance. But unfortunately, after 30 years, we see that they perform exactly the same, which, you know, probably goes to show the um, growth ripple effect really takes place everywhere. Yeah, this is not like a 10-year chart. It's not we've just cherry-picked some amazing, you know, performance timeframe for regional property. Like I've seen another chart where Launceston has performed just as well as Sydney over a, a period of time. But, you know, for those of you who think Sydney, Melbourne, no offense, but, you know, Sydney and Melbourne do not outperform the rest of Australia over a considerable period of time. And this goes all the way back out to 1990. Okay, next chart. So this is saying... Um, 1991 census income versus 20-year growth. What does this What does this one mean, Luke? Well, basically, we having a look at the 1991 census, um, having a look at the top suburbs on incomes, which is basically your blue chips in Melbourne. That might be your Turak and your Brightons, and Sydney it might be you know your Vaucluses, your Point Pipers, etc. And basically, having a look to see whether those suburbs can outperformed over the next 28 years. Um, and unfortunately, the again, the graph just shows that it's basically there's no correlation between income and uh, long-term capital growth. Um, the graph clearly shows from the first decile to the last, there's a pretty statistically insignificant difference between all the deciles, which really just shows that, um, you know, it doesn't matter what sort of income level you, of the suburb you're buying into is, um, you're going to do fine either way. There's no correlation here. It's not something that's actually relevant in any way, despite you know, many of the experts talking about, you know, got to invest in areas with high incomes. Yeah. I mean, there's a really, really famous podcast out there and the guys always go on about how you need to buy blue chip property and it needs to be in nice green leafy streets and the amazing owner occupier appeal because everyone drives an Audi. You know, it's those areas that perform the best. You know, it's not true. If, if actually anything, this is not statistically significant. It's not really material. But it seems that people in the middle, kind of like middle income earners, that sort of suburb or those suburbs tend to perform a little bit better, you know, as you can see in Decile 4, but yeah, really it's insignificant. So guys, if you're, you know, stretching yourself to buy an expensive property, it's going to be hugely negatively geared just because it's a better suburb, quote unquote, like that's probably not the right way to go about investing. All right, next one, price, property, price, suburb, sorry, suburb property, price variability. What, what is this one? Well, essentially, you often hear in property circles, you've got to invest in you know, the good pockets of the good of, of, of the suburbs. We invest in the good properties in the suburb. You know, there's certain properties in certain pockets of suburbs that will outperform others. You know, you want to be in, away from the public housing areas. You want to be in the good parts of the suburb. Those are the areas that will continually outperform the other parts. And basically, if this phenomenon was true in a general sense, what you would see over time is the suburb price variability would increase because the percentage difference between good properties and bad properties or good pockets and and bad pockets would expand over time. But the reality shows that this hasn't happened at all. It's, if anything, um, you know, it's actually gone the other way. It looks like uh, price variability has shrunk, which suggests that the difference between those bad properties and the good properties in suburbs has declined over the, you know, 25, 30 year period that we've got here. So um, that really debunks that myth, I think, as well. 
Yeah. And of course, that doesn't mean that we should just aim to buy in the most dodgiest pocket of a suburb. There's other factors to consider, like like what kind of tenants it's going to attract, how you know easily it will be easy it will be to maintain, and, and other things like that. But just from a pure capital growth perspective, um, it doesn't matter as much as people might make it out to. As you can see, as Luke said, this deviation from the median has actually gone downwards. So if anything, it meant a lot before finding the best street, the best uh, property. It still is important, don't get me wrong, but not as important as people might might have you believe. Um, all right, next um, one here. This is a little bit convoluted. Um, growth 2001 to 2011 versus growth 2011 to 2021. What do, what do we take away from this one? Basically, you know, you often hear experts say, you know, proven track record of performance. We invest in areas that have a proven track record. Unfortunately, that just basically theory is just not true. Um, they are right in the sense that, you know, past performance does have a correlation with future performance, but it's in the opposite direction they claim. Um, an area that's outperformed in the recent past is more likely to underperform in the near future. And that really just showed here. There's a clear correlation with the overlaps. So you have look, Brisbane outperformed the most between 2001 and 2011. All of a sudden, it's, you know, the third worst performer there. Central Coast, worst performer in 2001-2011, the top performer in 2011-2021. You know, same with Sydney, same with Perth. You can see that the overlaps are very significant here. Um, it's pretty clear over time, it, things just generally even out to that sort of 6 to 6 7% range over time. So, yeah. yeah. And what, what kind of strikes me is, once again, the age-old question of, like, does Sydney, Melbourne always outperform, you know, the big job centers, that's where all the immigration comes in. But, you know, after the Olympics, it's after the Olympics, like this big event that put Sydney on the map, Sydney for the next 10 years after U2000 underperformed, that was the second worst, like that's just phenomenal um, kind of insight. And the, the trend is very clear, right? So I would kind of imagine going forward, of course, there's more to it than this, but I'd imagine that the three best performers in the next 10 years from 2021 onwards was, according to this at least, is likely to be Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. Lo and behold, those are the cheapest areas with the high seals, areas that of course um, people have been following me know that I've been talking about for a long, long time. So, I mean, no one talks about this. Uh, I don't know why they say that, you know, something that's performed in the past has a proven record that's going to perform in the future. It smells like BS. All right, this next one, um, something that actually surprised me as well, uh, growth versus renter percentage based on the census from a long period of time, 2006 to 2018. What is this telling us, Luke? Well, basically here, we're just looking at um, the percentage of renters uh, in, a given in a given suburb, and we're seeing if, um, you know, suburbs have more renters, outperform or underperform over a long period of time. Obviously, you know, people often talk about owner-occupier appeal, and here, that looks like that actually is pretty true. Um, looks like over time, the less renters you have in a given suburb, the more likely they are to outperform. Yeah. And one thing I'll add is like normally, from my experience, those areas that have renter percentage less than 10 or maybe even 15 tend to be quote unquote blue chip suburbs. Not in all cases, there's always exceptions to that rule. Um, and those are heavily, heavily negatively geared. So that is one case for buying in like, you know, own occupied blue chip areas. But, you know, you can still find many, many suburbs with, you know, if you draw a line somewhere, like let's say 20 or 30 or 35, you can find affordable, 
um, high own occupier locations that grow really well. But yeah, guys, be very careful of like a place like Woodridge, right? Woodridge and, and Logan Central, a lot of buyers agents get you in there. I think the renter percentage is like 70 or 75. So in the short term, it's performed really well. But over the long term, remember, this is a, a long term view. It, it kind of sucks. So be very, very careful of that. All right, next suburb, Sydney land values or valuations, I, I assume, versus kilometers from the CBD. It, it's kind of self-explanatory, but, but Luke, go ahead. Well, basically, we're here, we're just investigating the claim that proximity to the CBD is a growth driver. You often hear people say you've got to be in the first 10K, 20K from the big CBD. They outperform over the long term. Um and we're using land values here to avoid the whole median price trap. So we're, you know, we're not using median data, which can be skewed. We're using land values, which is natural capital growth. And we're just going to see if there's any correlation. And, um, you know, the graph shows that over the 17-year period, um, you know, there's basically no correlation at all. The, the line of best fits perfectly flat. There's no difference um, whether you're buying 60 kilometers from the CBD or, you know, 5Ks. It's pretty much exactly the same. Um, you know, the idea that, Land values, um, we have well, the idea that kilometers from the CBD has a correlation with long-term capital growth is a pretty flawed theory. Yeah, and the, there's, once again, and not to point out any names, but it's really tempting to do so. There's many buyers agents out there, especially some who espouse the need to buy, you know, multi-million dollar properties because that's how the top 1% of Australians invest and get rich and you should buy in vault clues or these types of areas. I mean, this, this graph completely negates that argument that you need to buy expensive and premium close to CBD locations to get that premium growth. Simply not true. And, and I don't know if we have further charts on this, but this is actually by and large, um, this kind of flat horizontal line is true for, for basically all of our locations across Australia. So it's not just a, a Sydney phenomenon. And then a similar thing, proximity to stations. I assume this means, is it train stations or bus, bus stops? Train, train stations. Yeah. So what's this one saying? Basically, just looking at whether you know being <clears throat> the train stations, um, you know, results in any up sort of performance at a suburb level. Um, basically, do stations with suburbs outperform those who don't um, over the long term? Um, and obviously, here we're seeing it doesn't. There's numerous um, sort of intersection points throughout the graph, which clearly shows that you know there's not nothing really going on here. It's um, over the over the thirty years, we're not seeing any significant difference between the two um, lines at all. So there's basically no correlation between suburbs and stations where those who don't. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of really counterintuitive and, and hard for me to believe, but this is the data. Like, the data is the data is just cold, hard facts. Once again, we do, from a rentability perspective, it's, you know, if you had the choice, you'd want to be close to those amenities. You want to be close to a train station, even to buy a property for investment purposes. You know, if you had an I identical scenario and one property was closer to a train station, like who wouldn't take it closer as long as everything else was exactly the same? But that's not a factor that you would prioritize over anything else, according to this um, chart, which is very clearly laid out. All right, this one, this is a really, really common one, you know, growth Melbourne suburb. So Melbourne suburb growth over this time period from 1990 to 2018 with classic schools versus those without. I assume classic schools means like really well-rated schools or private schools, something like that? Yeah, they're basically long-established schools that have, um, you know, high desirability, been there for a long period of time, very desirable. Um, both public and private, there's numerous um, public schools as well, they're in that um, same calibre, but 
Um, again, same thing. There's no real correlation here at all between having good schools in the same suburb and those suburbs outperforming versus you know, suburbs that have you know, average schools. It's sort of interesting that this purple line, it does divert and decouple from the green line, the non-good school suburb growth line for, for a period. It, it happens here as well around the GFC time, 2007, 2008. I don't know the reason for that. Maybe there's some arbitrage opportunity. A new school coming in um, is likely to you know, really boost values, land valuations in a suburb. I don't know if that's the reason or, of course, this is such aggregate data, probably smooths all those exceptions out. But over the long term, there's no difference. So once again, guys, if everything is equal, you probably want to choose something close to a good school, but it's not something that I would prioritize um, and pay extra for or something like that from a growth perspective. Um, this is this is awesome. I'm having fun. Uh, suburbs near shopping centers. So, you know, we've covered stations, we've covered um, proximity to CBD. Does being close to a shopping center actually help capital growth? Yeah, pretty similar chart here again. Um, doesn't look like there's much in it here at all. The graph's been following a pretty similar trend the whole time. Looks like there's a little bit of a divergence of 2012, but um, looks like they're, they're going to converge again in the recent future. Again, that, that gap's been shrinking. So um, the fact that there's conversion points suggests that there's no correlation here. If there was um, a correlation between shopping centres and capital growth, you would see um, the purple line and the green line expanding consistently over time, like you can with other trends such as units and houses. But this just isn't one of those um, trends. Yeah, I would love to see. I'd love to see like a uh, another line to show the collinearity or uh, just the relationship between rental growth and some of these factors that we've been mentioning. Because there's no, you know, significant relationship with capital growth. But my hypothesis is that there could be something with rental growth, but I don't know. Um, but at least not from a capital growth perspective. Um, okay, eight-year capital growth following a twenty-year what does this one mean? In income growth. So income growth. basically, you know, one of the claims is invest in areas with higher incomes, but there's a second part to that as well. Some experts go a bit further and say it's not about income, it's about income growth because that suggests gentrification. Um, nonetheless, um, we've had a look here at um, the eight years capital growth following the 20 years of the suburbs with the highest income growth over a 20-year period and seeing whether we're seeing any sort of outperformance here. And the data actually shows the exact opposite. Um, areas with the less income growth are actually growing at a at, at growing at a faster rate for whatever reason that may be. But um, either way, it's another myth busted. There's no correlation between income growth either, um, as well as incomes in terms of uh, long-term capital growth performance. Right. So decile zero is the lowest um, income levels, and D nine is the highest. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's actually maybe because of the fact that. The twenty, the areas with the highest income growth, not necessarily people getting pay rises. I think that these are the areas that have gentrified the most in the previous twenty years already. A lot of people have moved into a lot of people have moved into that suburb. It's pushed prices up higher. The higher prices have then meant only rich, only rich people can get into it. That's that, that's pushed the income growth, the income up. It looks like it's income growth. But I think these are just the areas that have outperformed over the past twenty years. And then I think that's why they've underperformed over the following eight years, just because they've outperformed over the past twenty years. Yeah, I think there's some sort of um, regression to the mean kind of variable going on in here because, like, if I just take 
a suburb. It's very hard to get true data. It'd be great to have a chat with Jeremy as well to kind of deep dive a little bit further. But let's say like Redfern. Uh, Redfern's in Sydney. It's quite close to the airport, quite close to the CBD. And, you know, it was like a you know, commercial, industrial, I don't want to say trashy, but not the greatest area. And it's literally like more than tripled in the last 10 years. But what were the incomes before that? It's hard to tell because it wasn't fully zoned residential. So I don't know if it's like if the data has some like how statistically reliable this this data is. But I mean, if it is even close to being um, true, then it gives a pretty clear picture of what's going on. Um, okay, next one. Yield versus decile distance from the CBD. Go ahead, Luke. Yeah, here we're just basically looking at um, uh, the rental yields in terms of the CBD. Uh, this one here, pretty clear correlation, pretty clear trend. The further away you get, the higher rental yield you get. Um, yeah. This one's pretty obvious, and, and we've already demonstrated as well, not we, but Jeremy um, has demonstrated that being close to the CBD has no um, additional capital growth over the long run. So when you look at a place like the a chart like this, it's so easy to conclude, and as you should, that you don't need to buy close to the CBD. In fact, if you do, you're going to buy something heavily negatively geared, and it's going to underperform in terms of capital growth. Just the opposite of what, you know, I wish I could say names, but just the opposite of what, like, some of the biggest, biggest property institutions or buyers agents in Australia will tell you. So actually, according to this and that previous chart, it's probably better to buy in ring seven, ring eight, ring nine, because you're getting the most high yield or at least high cash flow possible positive cash flow ideally it helps you ride through the interest rate cycle and you get just as good, good capital growth so that's yeah these economics of property are, are seldom understood and it's really cool to go through these charts this one's a bit different uh, what does this one say since looking at the long-term cumulative growth of all the major cities um, you know the idea that some cities outperform others clearly um, it's just sort of moved by this theory over time you know this in the short term, there's differences, but over the long term, it all kind of averages out with a you know, mean reversion as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think some people might ask, oh, hey, why have you guys taken an arbitrary end in 2017? Because obviously Sydney's boomed after that. In some previous charts we were taking in 2018, that's just when uh, I think this analysis had been conducted by Jeremy. But even if you had that school of thought, yes, Sydney has gone um, up again, you know, no, no doubt about that. But so is Brisbane, so is Perth, and so is Melbourne. In fact, over the last couple of years, Brisbane has outperformed um, Sydney and Melbourne. I think Adelaide has as well. So once again, if, if you're kind of you know living in Sydney, Melbourne, and you're like, uh, you know what, I just want to buy in these areas because you know that's that's what's safe. You know, it's safe. It's actually not any more safer than buying in any other capital city or any other major regional center for that matter. Um, okay, we've got a few more. Um, what is this? Is a table? What is this one saying? Um, this one's just looking at um, sort of each um, the price point of each suburb um, representing ten different deciles, and then where they go on to outperform. So it looks, you know, the idea of blue chip outperforming is it true? Um, and over time, you can see that it's actually not true at all. The tenth decile over time has actually underperformed the uh, first decile, and there's a pretty clear correlation between. Um, the decile and capital growth, the cheaper you go, the more they outperform over the long term and short term for that matter as well, actually. Yeah. So D1 is um, cheaper, D10 is more expensive. And you see after a three-year period, 12% beats 
uh, 5%, hope I'm reading this right, um, four-year period, 11% beats 5.8%, five-year period, 10% beats 6%. So, you know, guys, there's no reason. I mean, I When I did the analysis, I came to the conclusion there's no need to buy residential property for investment purposes above 700K. Uh, in fact, you know, the cheaper is not necessarily the better, but there's just no reason to go above that. Ideally, between four, 500K, a little bit less, a little bit more, that's sort of the sweet spot. Value versus yield. What does this one um, talk about here, Luke? Um, instead, of, instead of the other chart where we looked at uh, yield versus proximity CBD, he was looking at the price points um, and uh, and yield, and we're seeing the cheaper the price point is, the higher the yield is. That's been consistent over time. Though the yield has gradually dropped as prices have been increasing over time, the, the general trend that the cheaper you go, the higher the yield um, has been consistent. Nice, nice. Okay, so that's that's obvious. Historical growth versus future growth. We sort of touched on this before, but it suggests that in the blue, um, the last 10 years is kind of going like this, and the next 10 years is like this. So this really perfectly illustrates that um, law of averages or regression to the mean. If something has already grown in the last 10 years, it's fairly unlikely it's going to be an outperformer in terms of growth in the next 10 years. So when you're looking for your next city or ideally just suburb within an LGA, try to find something that hasn't grown that much in the past and that does have strong data right now because we want to get those short-term um, that short-term growth. We want to be able to leverage equity you know, in the next one year, two years. Over the long-term, 30 years, everything performs the same anyway. So property investing is a long-term game, but to retire or to get a passive income, we need those short-term results. Kind of counterintuitive, but that's the way to understand it. This was an interesting one um, by Jeremy. 16-year capital growth probabilities. How do we understand this one, Luke? Well, here we're kind of investigating the claim that, you know, most property markets perform the same over the long term. Um, and we're just having a look here, whether there's any sort of, any, you know, decent chance of outperforming or underperforming. And here we're seeing that, you know, for the most part, most suburbs perform generally within, the, you know, a pretty similar sort of it, that 5 to 10% area. Um, there's very few suburbs that, that continually perform that 10 to 15% over a long period of time and even fewer that, that underperform. So, yeah. Yeah, and this is kind of comforting as well because it is a normal distribution curve. And in the 16-year period, we had the GFC and, and other crises like that. So, you know, despite what happens in the short term and the long term, it it does come through. Of course, if you buy a dud, you know, even over 16 years, you can lose money under 5% or 5 to 0%. Um, if you do average, then, you know, you're looking at about 7.5% according to this chart over the long term. Um, and then two-year capital growth, probabilities, this kind of juxtaposed versus the chart that we just saw, to me anyway, it suggests that there's much more diversion or diversity in, in outcomes. And that, um, what do you make of this being kind of skewed to the right here? Um, Luke, is, is that saying that it's actually easier to make money or more likely to make money in the short term? Yeah, I think the point is that over the long term, you know, there's very little difference between suburbs, but in the short term, you can get radical differences. You know, there's much more chance of outperforming. There's, you know, um, much more divergence in general, so more opportunities to make money in the short term than there is in the long term. In the long term, it all kind of averages out, but in the short term, it's quite easy to find those outperformers. Yeah, so well said. Thank you. Um, growth versus distance to CBD. I think we already covered this. Is this the same chart or has this got some nuance? This is a similar one, but looks at median values as opposed to land values. Um, this one, again, shows a pretty similar trend, um, if anything, um, it's probably not as statistically reliable because median value is a bit more flawed than land value. So 
um, I'd give more weight to the other graph. Got it. Got it. Similar um, insight or takeaway, though. Um, government housing versus capital growth. Just take us through this one. So he was looking at the claim that, you know, um, excess amounts of government housing in the suburb affect, um, you know, capital growth over the long term, medium term. Um, um, and here we're having a look and seeing that it's actually been, um, there's not much in it really um, over the long term. It doesn't look like, you know, excess amounts of government housing have really made any material effect on you know, capital growth. It seems as if, you know, the cap, the, um, the fact that there's government housing in the suburb would be already priced into the market and therefore um, it's just following, it's going along with the averages. Yeah. So there is a, a very slight um, decline here, which suggests that maybe slightly around the edges, if there's some horrendous clusters of public housing with like terrible sort of street appeal that might, you know, just might have some impact on on capital growth. But largely, if you kind of ignore um, beyond 10%, which you shouldn't really be. Yeah, it's not many suburbs with government housing beyond 10 or 15%, then there's there's no real implication. Of course, once again, the rental market is different, just like the brand new market for cars is different from the secondary market for cars, right? Different price points, different things that people look for, different type of demographic. Same with this, to buy and sell a house is a different market, to rent a house is a different market. And, you know, oftentimes renters don't want to be next to some trashy um, government house, not that they're all like that, but but from a strictly capital growth perspective, it doesn't matter. And then 32-year growth possibility. So we talked about two-year growth possibilities or probabilities. I think we also, was it 18 years or 16 years? We talked about one of them. This is stretching that out even further to 32 years. I mean, you can't really get data that's robust, you know, beyond, you know, this time frame in a lot of um, cases. So this is as far as we can go. And once again, over the long term, everything basically does the same in Australia. In this 32-year period, you know, we've had things like um, the recession we had to have in the late 80s, early 90s. We've had oil crises. We've had all sorts of things and properties perform well. So don't stress, even if you get it dramatically wrong in the short term, because you've you know, throwing a dart at the map, you'll it will still come right in the long term. But of course, that's not going to let you leave the nine to five in 32 years because you would have just made you know this much money in one property. You need that short term growth, like Luke was saying, um, a few times. Okay, second to last chart promise: um, past growth, i.e., 20 years versus future growth. How do we understand this one? Um, basically, just looking at the correlation between past growth and future growth, and on this graph, um, the general trend line is showing. You know, the same thing again, the more a suburb outperforms in the short term, the more likely it is to underperform in um, in, the recent, in the recent future um, and vice versa as well. So um, the idea that targeting, you know, those suburbs that have already grown heaps um, is going to result in that performance is um, really a flawed theory by this um, data. Yeah, this is actually really interesting. In my course, I, I I teach this exact same concept more around the 10-year time period. But if we extrapolate or stretch that out, then the same theory exists. We want to find suburbs that have languished for a long, long period of time. That doesn't mean we just automatically invest in them. You know, the stars need to line up. The data needs to be good now. But we do want to find those ugly ducklings or black sheep, um, so to speak. And this is a slight deviation on that, which is saying past 20, past 10 years versus future 20 years. So before we looked at 
uh, 20 years, 20 years, and 10 years, 10 years. This is 10 years and 20 years. And the gradient is a little bit less here, but same principle applies. If something is languished, suburbia is underperformed, maybe it's been negative or under 7%, which is the Australian average for the last 10 years, good chance that in the next 20 years, not just 10 years, but in the future 20 years, you know, because you want to buy a property, you want to hold it almost forever, right? For most cases, it's going to do well. So um, these, like, this has been really, really insightful. This 22 charts that we've just gone through. Luke, just before we wrap up, you know, one, once again, to reiterate, I think you've done so much research. You probably had calls with lots of companies. You've been in all the Facebook groups, probably watched a lot of YouTube content, podcast content. What's your like best advice to people just like you? I mean, you haven't signed up to my course. You've not signed up to a buyer's agent. You've not paid, I assume, for anything yet. You've just done a lot of diverse free research. What's your best advice to people who are maybe just like you, whether they're 21 or 41 or 51, but they haven't bought a property and they're like, everyone's trying to sell me stuff. What should I do? What's your, your advice to those people? I think the real key thing to do is just challenge everything that you read here. Don't just blindly believe anyone, trust anyone, really look into things, dig a bit deeper, be sceptical, um, and you, you'll start seeing, you know, look where the data's going. I think the main thing to do in property is really just challenge everything you're reading, everything you're hearing, um, everything you're seeing, because things are not quite as they seem always. A lot of people are agenda-driven. Agenda um, so just making sure you're really following the data, um, not listening to many opinions, just following the data, because the thing with property is you're going to see so many different opinions. Um, so just make sure you're following the data. I think if you follow the data, you really can't wrong. Yeah, 100%. And I just want to finish off this is quote that I recently heard, and it's really poignant. It says that 10% of people in the world think, 20% of people in the world think they think, and 70% or the balance of people rather die than think. So, you know, obviously you don't want to be in that 70%, but you like most people that are probably watching this, or maybe not my audience, hopefully, but, you know, watching content and absorbing podcasts and stuff, they're in that 20% category. They're thinking they're thinking because they're learning, they're hearing, they're watching the experts. That is a surefire way to like, you know, make huge, tremendous errors. You have to be in that 10% who actually think, not just regurgitate recycled information you've heard elsewhere, but be like Luke, um, you know, actually think think and challenge everything including me like challenges every challenge your own mindset as well but yeah this is really cool like i said guys at the start i am i'm not paying luke to be here he was just like a really good contributor in my facebook group and was challenging everything including me so i thought why not have him on and and he brought these amazing charts from from jeremy shepherd so yeah thank you so much luke big gratitude to you thanks big guys all right see you guys i'll see you next time